Well, hello, you charming men and women. This is uh, Mild Mannered Max, and this is another episode of the Mild Mannered Army podcast. And this episode is something very special for me. It's a long-form conversation with brothers James and Jude Cook of the Flamingos, whose debut album, Plastic Jewels, was released in 1995, so it's celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. And James and Jude were very kind and agreed to give me some of their time to talk through each of the tracks and share their memories and recollections and inspirations. And they prove themselves to be charming and erudite and witty and all the things that are lacking in my own personality. Hope you enjoy it. I wanted to start with was the improbably named producer Dick Meany, uh, who, yes. who had who had a bit of track record in the Britpop era, right? He worked with Suede on some tracks. He did a bit of work with Echo Belly. I think he might have produced their their debut AP Bellyache. So I'm curious about Dick Meany. Who who was he? How did you find him? Did he find you? So Dick Meany, yeah, he was uh, he was a young Irish guy, um, sort of starting his career as a engineer producer he was an engineer he was a trained engineer first and he was you know wanted to break into producing uh he just come off the the jesus and mary chain album um stoned and, and dethroned uh where he was a engineer on that he'd worked with Kerr, but yes i think we must have got he must have come to us via um via our label who who'd put out um echo belly's um belly Eight. yes that's that's right um and um you know he was he was a guy he was a guy in demand you know he was he had a lot of people sort of calling him up and uh when when you know i mean he 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 wanted to produce an album and when you, you know uh we got together i think <laughs> he quickly regretted working with a label that had no money uh <laughs> you know when he could have got the call from any number of bands and and, and not had a such a a stressful situation because uh, you know in in uh, if you've read um memory songs in my book memory songs i do i do sort of you know uh record how it wasn't a very easy happy process recording plastic no jewels. that's right the thing to remember about plastic jewels is that it was essentially re- uh <coughs> produced by by J- james and i i mean i think because we really really had a vision for the album um and dick was the engineer really and he was he was a sort of a junior engineer trained up at the church dave stewart studio so so really we were at the helm for most of it and i think because most of the bands that we liked at the time were as i mean self-produced maybe the Coxho twins even like zeppelin you know were had, had that sort of clear vision um so so that was the idea and I mean, had um, James can probably remember better about the other producers who later wanted to work with us, people like John Leckie, 
Gil Norton. I mean, we'd have jumped at the chance had they wanted to produce uh, plastic jewels, but they didn't, you know, they didn't know of us, nor did the label have any money to afford uh, producers like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, John Leckie did say he'd heard Plastic Jewels and, and offered, uh, and then he went off to work with the Blue Tones who were on a, on a proper record label. Um, I think the thing with, with Dick, I mean, the, the co-producing thing, we had to fight so hard for that because it was basically, you just didn't get to produce your first album. You know, we weren't Zeppelin. We weren't, we didn't have any track record. So, so that was an incredible thing for them to, to, to eventually let us do. Um, but but Jude's right in saying that, that you know, Dick was the, the facilitator and we had the vision. And I, I remember one time he, he asked us or we, we suggested, we said, you know, let's bring into the studio the albums that, that we really liked to, to, to get an idea of what we wanted to sound like. And um, I brought in um, the Waterboys, This Is The Sea. And mm. Dick just played one track and just said... I would never wash a vocal that much. You know, <laughs> I would never put that much reverb on a vocal. And that was it. Conversation closed. You know, <laughs> we, loved, we love Stoned and Dethroned, the Mary Chain album. The Mary Chain album, Stoned and Dethroned, we loved. And Teenage Emergency was um, part of an EP which Dick engineered. And we went to Drugstore, which was the Mary Chain studio in the Elephant and Castle. Um, and that was great, you know, because he really knew that studio. And, and he's a nice guy. He was a lovely guy, Dick. Um, but Dick, he was very sharp and he had a very sort of dry sense of humour. Big um, Elvis fan as well. Huge Elvis fan. And uh, but we sort of we had uh, a time recording the LP when um, we sort of bonded over different things. Like we bonded over Mike Peters from the Alarm. I seem to remember just <laughs> working with Mike Peters. And I was a huge Alarm fan <laughs> as a teenager, you know. So we talked about Mike Peters and. You know, it was it, it was they were it wasn't a, an unhappy experience working with Dick. It was when the the, the record label uh, problem started. And that's when that's when it um, started to unravel. You've mentioned both of you've mentioned separately, actually, the fact that you had a very clear vision going into the of making plastic jewels. So I, I wondered. Jude, can you say something more about what that vision was? And, and do you feel that you realised that vision with the album? Well, I think, I mean, the band really sort of started in the in a studio, you know, before we had Kevin, the drummer, and we were demoing these songs. We were demoing constantly, you know, in the early 90s. And it, we got to a point where we just thought, you know, let's just throw all the, these songs away and write something that was really vital. So, I mean, I think Suede coming through had, had something to do with that as well. So he ditched about 150 songs and said, let's write, you know, about stuff that's just, you know, quite, uh, quite personal. You know, a song like Absent Fathers, Violent Sons came up. James went and wrote um, It's Been a Thrill. So he had this idea that it was about um, the vision was it's an album sort of about growing up and getting through that and all the cliches of that existential pain. Um, and, you know, there's a, a song called Suicide Bridge, which is about a friend of ours who took his own life. So it was very much sort of let's go, you know, let's let's sort of explore all these things on this album. Um, uh, and, and yeah, we were very earnest about it. And I think part of the reason why we 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 were able to blag our way to produce it is because we demoed all the songs absolutely to the nth degree at this, at this studio called La Rocca where we 
both worked. Um, so we had all the guitar parts and everything worked out. Um, and it was just as well because the record company didn't have terribly much money. Um, so we knew exactly what we were going to do when <clears throat> we went into the studio. But then it, for, for, for reasons that James goes over in his book, it fell apart in the studio. James, do you want to say something about that? Maybe maybe a brief synopsis of exactly the level of hell that you found yourself in during that recording process? <laughs> In the studio, um, yeah, what, what it was, it, it started very leisurely. Um, we went to a studio, quite an expensive studio called Falconer in Kentish Town, and we spent a, a nice leisurely week on the bases, you know, Dick with his feet up on the on the monitor, you know, reading the sun, and we were chatting, you know, and it was quite, that's a luxury to spend a week on the rhythm section, that it was deemed that the bass was out of tune because we'd been using these guitars, these Squire copies that we'd bought, on when we were on the dole six years earlier when we first landed in london and we still so, work on the dole. <laughs> we, and we still work we, we do it we're all the it's the cliche we were arranging all the recording and touring around signing on but anyway we so we were in this 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 big posh studio you know different takeaway every night and um and suddenly the bases are out of tune and the the the, the label came in and, and basically said we, we're not we're not going to stump up for we're not going to hire you know you've got to you just got to go with it you know dick was having a meltdown because he was on the his manager was on the phone to him five times a day saying just walk you know you can go and work with the boo radleys you don't that you don't need this you know um dick bless him stayed stayed on uh and so they Sprung, they sprung to hire a bass amp and a bass guitar. This lovely, lovely um, music man, Stingray, I seem to remember, arrived in the morning. And I did redid all my bass parts sort of on this high octane kind of. I think that accounts for a lot of the energy in, in, in the album in parts that I had to do it all again, do them one every half an hour. And at the end of the day, the, the hire company was dismantling the head of the amp, the Ampeg head is taken <laughs> down as I was trying to do my last part, you know. As I was, having a heart attack the label came in yeah and said you're going to have to use all your all, all the b-side all the you know b-sides and <clears throat> stuff that you've done before is going to be the second part of the album second side of it in the days when there were two sides of vinyl um and uh you know and we that's when it really cracked with the record company we said no way you know we've been trying to work on this album since we were 15 <laughs> you know we're not just going to put our demos and b-sides on the album and moved to um, a studio. It was recorded over four studios, Falconer first. Then we went to Milo in um, <clears throat> Hackney, where I did the guitars. And the guitars uh, had the same problem, is that I had this broken sort of Fender Telecaster. So we had to borrow uh, a proper vintage Telecaster um, off our manager's um, uh, partner and I did all the guitar parts I think in sort of 20 uh, 48 hours and had this collapse afterwards this sort of gastric event um, <laughs> at, at, at Milo I, you know every time I go to Hoxton Square I, I look at Milo and remember that all <laughs> awful but, yeah. I, I think but do you think that might have again had something to do with the immediacy the sort of urgency of the sound I think so I listened to the album yesterday 25 years on last night and I just thought, this is the sound of three absolutely mad people trying, <laughs> trying to play as, as fast and as furiously as they can yeah. for four <laughs> minutes. And, I mean, things quietened down when we went to do the vocals, and we did the vocals at a, 
studio, which is almost like a home studio. It's owned by the Orb, who was big at the time. And we did the vocals in a, in, in a week. I mean, you know, that was rushed as well because we had to do all the B-sides at the same time. So we were working on 15 tracks, 15 songs. Um, and then um, it was mixed at Wessex, um, which James uh, wrote about in his book. You mentioned something there that's pivotal to the story as well, of course. Now, is, it, is the sound of three people uh, going mad? Um, I, I, my, my, my contention would be, and of course, I'm quite happy to acknowledge that I don't know this. My reading of the situation with the flamingos is, is that quite possibly you two went mad because of those reasons. I have a funny feeling that the third figure in the story, Kevin, was probably already mad. So <laughs> could you could you say something about Kevin Matthews? Who was Kevin? Where did you find Kevin? And crucially, where is Kevin now? Okay, so Kevin Kevin's a good friend now. Kevin is 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 a lovely guy. Um, he was a couple of years old, well, five years older than us. We found him through the tried and trusted uh, Melody Maker ad. Um, I write about this in, Mel- in in Memory Songs. Everyone was turning up, you know, with grunge centre partings and 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 uh, cheesecloth shirts. And this guy turned up in this Bowie sort of you know hat and uh, flared core jacket and and he just you know he, he looks actually quite a lot like brett anderson <laughs> and he was a huge bowie fan and he just but he, also he was he was a songwriter and he joined the wrong group in a way because we were two you know real kind of control freaks that that we were you know they, it was quite a crowded niche already for writing songs so we had this dynamic which and now i realize is actually it's a pain in the ass at the time but it's a really good dynamic for a group like the who where you've got these sort of this kind of volatile mix. Uh, and so, so, so that, you know, Kevin, and he'd been in quite a few bands before he'd been in, ah, oh, I can't remember what he'd been in. Eve, sex Children. Yeah. So, so he, he had, and he knew people and he, he got us to, you know, through to our manager, he introed us and that, you know, we probably wouldn't have made an album without Kevin. So it was a huge stroke of luck um and you know so you've got this very strong character who's a bit older and and two very opinionated guys the twins in the band um so so it was an odd mix but i think you know uh it it did work i I remember um going back to recording the drums when we did the song winter and me and kevin had this big argument just beforehand and he went into the room and he did his drums in one take on that song and he's really angry you can hear he's really hitting them hard and he's brilliant he's just a fantastic drum take you know and i think just just i will say in praise of kevin's work on the album it took me a long time to realize that all his um his fills are kind of hooks because he came he was a songwriter as well that little intro to disappointed that you know they're all little hooks in the song so he really contributed a huge amount and he also brought good trousers, right? It's my favourite quote of the Britpop era, Kevin talking about how important good trousers are. And, and, and it has become really... I, I saw the comedian Daniel Kitson. I don't know if you know Daniel Kitson. He's a very talented yeah. guy. He really, He's a playwright, really, is what he is now. But I saw him a long while ago. He had this whole piece about rules for life. Bell and Sebastian have an album. I think it might be Dear Catastrophe Waitress. And on the inside, it says rules for life. You know, and it's things like, you know, never cross a picket line, always get your round in, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Daniel Kitson's saying, no, I just, I, I can't do it. Because whenever I have a rule 
for myself, you know, something that's an absolute. I, there's always a little voice in my head that says, yeah, but but what about? And he, the example he gives is, well, I like eggs. So you can carve that into my headstone. I like eggs. But then the little voice says, well, what about if somebody was throwing an egg at your face? Would you like an egg then? And that, that, that has kind of stayed with me. But the only rule for life I have, and it's as directly as a result of Kevin Matthews, is always have good trousers. Yeah. Always have good trousers. So, so Kevin, if you do happen to listen to this, uh, thank you, my friend. Yeah. Right, no, lucky. I'll just just to say he was very lucky yeah. because his girlfriend at the time was in fashion, worked in fashion, and uh, so he and I think she made clothes as well. So, uh, and they did a lot of, you know, they were one of the first sort of um, couples or, or people to to sort of really know the value of the charity shops, and there was amazing stuff. So he'd come with his sort of pencil cord uh, flares, you know, um, and his girlfriend always looked amazing, you know, because she she would go around the charity shops and pick up all the all the sort of the bomber jackets and stuff. Um, so, yeah, no, Kevin, Kevin was the sartorial uh, force. <laughs> 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 that's wonderful um, well, this thing, well, just say, have you noticed all all your favorite bands looked great it's crucial a, a band a band should look like a band and I, 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 for me my favorite bands always have a very clear sense of style and it may not be a sense of style that i could carry off or that i would want to carry off but i love a band to look like a band whether that's sparks who just look incredible even now sparks look incredible or it's the strokes or you know at least three of the four people in the smiths or franz ferdinand or you guys or suede there was a definite sense of you know that visual aesthetic being as important as the manics the manics is another great example yeah yeah i think with the manics and their white trousers the white jeans i mean it struck me at the time actually that that all those groups sort of wanted to look like repetitive siblings Yes. So and we had this advantage because we were repetitive siblings, you know, uh, and it's just it's something that, you know, if you you can go too far the other way, it can look too, you know, sort of um, stylized. You know, bands have stylists now, um, but bands didn't have stylists then, really. They just wore they just threw it together. You know, Suede were a great example. They were the the sort of chat, the big charity shop band um, that looked incredible. Well, there's, you can spot it a mile off when a stylist is involved, you know, because there's a difference between style and fashion, right? You know, and, and style is something that I think is just innate within people. And I think you're right to talk about suede. I think Richard Osman in, in, in the documentary, the Insatiable Ones, he talks about the fact that, you know, watching Matt and Brett, they always looked like outsiders. They always looked like a, a gang apart. And I think that that is just an innate thing. You know, I, I, I don't dress like that. That's the thing. And I think a lot of it came yeah. from Justine and, and yeah. also the access with goldsmiths as well. There was a little there's probably, you know, you could get them all into a room, five or six people who basically created the templates of what people would wear in the 90s or that part of the 90s. And it was a very, you know, it was it, it wasn't it was just it started in, in such a small thing and then went out. I mean, you know, they wore all that stuff that cost 20 pence on the front cover of the Melody Maker and Q magazine. It's incredible, really. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, I know it's it's a bit rose tinted, but um, it was a, a, an incredible time in all sorts of ways. And you're right to point out the fact that charity shops at that point really were you know, a treasure trove of things. I mean, I, I, I wore a death, a grey three-button single-breasted mod suit that, that I bought for a pound out of a charity shop outside of 
the university of paisley's uh, main campus in I don't know, 1993 something like that but we're still wearing it until last year that's not true anyway listen i, I want to maybe try and yeah. get your thoughts on um each track just just a couple of thoughts as, as we go through the album so as you both know, uh, and I, I wrote this, I think, before I'd, I'd spoken with either one of you, so it's it's not a case of blowing smoke in a particular direction. That for me, the the key single of the Britpop era, the best single of the Britpop era, is the album opener, which is disappointed. And I've written a very long piece on the site about why I feel that way about the album, and you both contributed to that. Um, and I stick by it. I think it captures more of what that era was like for people like me than anything else. It's certainly more, you know, I mean, that line, it's hard having higher thoughts when you're an income support. I mean, that, that is the perfect encapsulation of the poverty of expectation, I think, that existed for so many young people at the start of the 90s. I mean, Daniel Rachel talks about this in his book, um, Cool Britannia, which is a great read, that kind of oral history of the 90s, that there really was a poverty of expectation. Um, and lots of that was linked directly with actual poverty and benefits culture and what have you but I, I think that 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 line it's hard having higher thoughts when you're on income support that was quite a calculated line um but it did come out of that as you say that that if you were trying to do anything creative at the time you really were being shut down by the government it felt like it if you were because it was quite hard to to really to do anything you know uh meaningfully creative um without sort of some sort of resources and i do you know at that time i do say or no i i, I was i nicked it off joe strummer he said the the dole was the arts council the true arts council of britain at that time you know without the dole there'd be no smiths happy mondays stone roses suede Oasis, even you know, it, Gallagher was on the Noel was on the on, on the uh, the Dole for eight years by his own admission, you know. Um, so, and we we were no different in that sense, you know. We we spent four and a half years, you know, living in extremely cold rooms trying to get something to happen. Um, so, you know, and I'm glad it. I'm glad others picked up on it that, that there was something real there, you know. Um, all of the best pop songs have something to say, man, but they also, you know, make you want to dance and make you want to sing along. And, and Disappointed is, is the perfect example of that, you know, that there are wonderful lines that make you laugh out loud, but it also has this, I mean, you, you, you've both mentioned it, that, that sense of urgency, you know, it drives along at, at quite the pace. It's really melodic. It's, it's a great opener to... Oh, almost anything really you know yeah. we didn't have we didn't it was that old thing where you've got the album written everything had been written two years ago and we didn't have or we didn't even realize we didn't have the sort of the opening track the, the big song um and i'd been sort of um you know scheming away trying to write the indie hit you know i'd be listening to a lot of elastica was that very that very sort of solid beat that they laid down you know um we were using a lot of pushes and it was quite frantic and it was just write something really solid quite slow it's quite a slow song um but put sort of slightly gloomy thoughts into an uplifting setting um and then when we played this in the rehearsal room we all got quite excited so, well this is the you know um this this is this can go at the front of the album and it sort of completed it so 
I mean, that, that, that's really interesting for me because, you know, you're saying you didn't have that, you know, big song that was going to kick everything off. And yet you follow up disappointed on the album with a song which is just, I mean, it's just furious and fabulous. And that's Teenage Emergency, which starts off like the best song Nirvana never got around to writing. <laughs> with those those heavy rifts and the pounding drums and there's a fabulous, I mean, really sneering, snotty vocal. And then it becomes this glorious sort of English post-punk pop record with references to love and flashy gear and those English fears. It's just, it's another really great record. I didn't write the song um, and I always loved playing that song live because it was it was a blast and it has got that you know you can't pose in catalogue clothes that sort of awareness <laughs> of you know what, what what it takes to, to sort of be in a band in that in that gang but it was I suppose taken as a whole uh, with the album it, I mean it was it wasn't saying going to those dark places like a lot of the other songs in the album um but having said that you put it very eloquently paul you know it it sort of takes on this life of its own it has all these other resonances um when 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 you sort of uh you know take it out from that i remember that the guitars at the end i was trying to be james dean bradfield at the end and layer all these guitars <laughs> these sort of counterpoint mel- melodies at the end and got a bit carried away with that so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but you're right, Paul. It is. It's like two songs. It's two songs bolted together. You know, you've got this this quite uh, sort of um, I don't know what you'd call it angular thing. That yeah, maybe it did come from grunge, but it was kind of grunge filtered through Elastica. You know, the way that they yeah. use those chords, and then <laughs> and then it sort of goes into something that that very classic progression that 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 so many Bowie songs use. That's what what I was trying to channel. Um, that that it's driving Saturday, you know that 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 step down thing, um, and and you know using the slightly mollifying love, you know which Bowie used in um, yeah. in his, his sort of Ziggy period, you know. So those they, they were little kind of little uh, sort of Morse code signals to people who who would be Bowie fans and and you know who would pick up on that hopefully, you know. The third track on the album was this scene which. I mean, it's difficult. I'm looking at my notes here and I've said, oh, this is this is my favourite song in the album. But as I carried on making notes, I realised that every song kind of made me feel that way by the, by the end of it. You know, it's, it's just one great record I've done. But there is something really fantastic about Safe. There's something about that line, um, it's 
escape the spiders in my in the mind. That's right, escape the spiders in the mind. And that made me think of the Cure and that line and Lullaby about the Spider-Man having me for dinner tonight. And um, there are so many other great lines as well. You know, and th- there's one which is seems like a very simple, you know, rhyme, but Wonder at the Thunder. Just sort of really kind of poetic about that. There's a place I think you can help me find, which just seems so romantic and you know so filled with yearning and then won't someone find a place where i can feel safe and my experience of being this slightly peculiar young man in the 90s as a result of my unusual uh religious upbringing peculiar is maybe a better way of putting it peculiar religious upbringing was that i was definitely looking for that i was looking for somewhere where i could feel safe and I was desperately searching for somebody who could maybe help me to find that. And it wasn't until last night when I was listening to that, I thought that, that this is really why I'm connecting with this song. This this is the soundtrack to my experience. Thank you, for those kind words. Um, and it's great the song sort of connected. Um, and I, I, you know, I think the song. This is uh, Jude speaking i wrote it and um i mean the rule on the album was whoever um wrote the song ended up singing it so in that sense we were sort of trying to do a sort of beatles thing that there was more yeah. than a singer but with safe it's a very personal song it's about sort of growing up in a small town and um, satellite town going underground and that feeling that you had to get out of that town or you would actually go under you know and it's about i suppose male vulnerability you know to you know, actually asking, is there a place that, you know, that, that you can feel safe in? Um, so it was very personal and, and it's quite, uh, you know, the, the, the album has this sort of two, these two modes, the really fast and furious ones, but the equally kind of intense, slower songs. And that was like the chosen few and it's been a thrill. So safe was one of those songs, you know, um, and I mean, live, you know, I love playing those slower songs, but the, the demands of playing live were, were such that most bands just did sort of six or seven really fast songs, but we would also go out on a limb and play safe. I mean, we played it first at the borderline um, and, and uh, I'm not sure how well it went down. And then we played at the hundred club, that gig, you know, the, the, the these animal yeah. men gig, you know, when it, when sort of the new wave of new wave was raging. So we felt sort of at odds, even at the time with all these other bands, you know, playing a song like say. Yeah. Uh, I think I just, just to, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. Um, Deborah, our manager loved that song and, and Kevin did as well. It was very, it was a sort of popular, even though, as you say, it wasn't a, a you know, a kind of banger as, 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 the, as, the, as it, you know, people, that's what they wanted. But just, just, yes, a couple of things about the imagery, um, certain lines like, uh, I'm bowing out tonight. So no, someone's bowing out tonight and, and also going underground. Uh, I like that sort of, that juxtaposition of, you know, obviously referencing the jam with something that was a lot more um, sort of widescreen, you know, um, these little things just jumped out as a, as a, as a, you know, someone who didn't write the songs as a listener, you know, so th- these, these were attractive and spiders. I always thought of the spiders from Mars, you know, <laughs> obsessed with Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, when, when I was reading over the lyrics last night and putting some notes together, one of the things that, that came into my mind, when I was listening to Safe specifically was that the last time we spoke and we were talking about the writing process and I talked about you being musicians and then becoming writers and you had 
both discussed the fact that you know you'd really been writers first and foremost and, and you talked about a, a particular teacher at school and having been tasked with writing a novel and it it became very clear listening to safe that that was actually not that i doubted the veracity of that but you know that the truth of that was writ large for me because these are lyrics that have been written by writers and that, that runs right through the album you know there's a a certain amount of care and attention to detail and intellect at the risk of being too achingly pretentious that, that kind of comes through in a lot of these lines and uh, safe does a really good job of that but but so do certain other songs uh anyway that's that's we're, we're getting into the realms of being uh, a bit gushy let's move on to getting out of our heads and hitting the scene with try it on Yeah, yeah, try it on. So um, <laughs> this is, I just really want to say something about the words, though, Paul. Of course, yeah, please. Because uh, we got the review, the, the Melody Maker review of Teenage Emergency said, yeah, it's a great song, but they're not that, like the Manics, they're not that good at the words. And that really <laughs> rankled. And then the week after, the uh, the Manics released the Holy Bible, and they had a double page. They took out the double page spread in the Melody Maker for the lyrics. And of course, the lyrics to the Holy Bible are just incredible. <laughs> um, I won't name the journalist, but she's still active now. But, um, you know, she, uh, that, you know, so, the, yeah, we did spend a lot of time with the words. It's true. We, we really, really tried to, to, um, to, 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 to work on them. But, yeah, try it on. So that, that we're talking about charity shops. That's literally... Uh, it's one of my favourite songs on the album because it, it, it's quite throwaway, but it's just the feeling. It's just it's literally going around the charity shops with your girlfriend at that time, you know, that in your early twenties, that kind of almost starter marriage relationship that lots of people had, and you're you're just you know you're kind of you're just having fun. You haven't got much money to spend, but it's you've got this all this 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 trove of richness in the in these shops to. Um, to sort of try on different identities, you know. Well, for me, the, the, the key line in Try It On is it has a certain unconventional beauty. And I, I, I took that much more personally. I, I felt like, you know, I wish there had been more girls in the 90s who felt that way about me. <laughs> that, I, that I had possessed a certain unconventional beauty. But I, I, unfortunately, the numbers who felt that way were very, very few and far between. Uh, not not something that two uh, handsome fellows like you would have to worry about. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's such a... Yeah, I mean, it's a riot try-on, isn't it? You know, it's it's really cocky, and it's got a bit of a swagger to it, and it's it's great fun. And that, that captures the, the, the other part of that whole 90s british music thing yeah you know there were people writing things like the holy bible and safe band for me modern life is rubbish you know really you know brilliantly written carefully crafted um, lovingly put together uh, music but there was also a real sort of 
hedonism to it all. There's there's a great moment in um, Live Forever, that documentary about the, the, the era when Oswald Boateng is, is interviewed and he talks about all the things, all those conversations you'd had in the 80s about what if, that that's what happened in the 90s, if began to happen. And, and Try It On captures a bit of the spirit of that, right? Let's just go out and try it on. Let's just do things. Let's let's it, not it worry always, about this. It was it was always a kick to play live. Actually, that song it was amazing. And just my one note. This is um, <coughs> Jude speaking. <laughs> my one note about about that song was it was the it almost caused the, like the breakup of the band in the studio <laughs> because there's a sort of non solo in the middle. It's just feedback. And our, engineer, our mix engineer at the time um, uh, played a bit of harmonica and he, he sort of volunteered to play his harmonica solo, which I hated. And James loved. <laughs> and we fought and fought over it, you know, and <laughs> you know, walking through London, having this just literally just having this raging argument, walking like halfway across London. And um, but, you know, we're probably going to have part two of the argument because that was actually my idea. Because I was trying to channel. (laughs) Roxy Music used to, Brian Ferry used to get on the harmonica sometimes. And also the Psychedelic Furs, there's a track, there was a specific track from the first Furs album where there's a harmonic. Now, Jude, I will have to concede you're probably right. um, Because the, the, what, I think, what, years later, I finally admit that, you know, because the palette, now this is quite an interesting thing because. Because if we had had harmonicas and then, you know, string sections, if we could afford them, then the palette, the sonic palette of the album would be <laughs> that classic. So, you know, that's a, one of the reasons I think it hasn't dated too much is because it's just guitar based drums and that's never going to date. You know, so yeah. I'd, love well, to, I'd love to have that board mix of the harmonica so I could just play it myself. Just, just yeah. Them. Interestingly, now when when James and I look at each other's writing, the try on harmonica solo has become a byword for inadvisable decisions. (laughs) (laughs) Don't put that in. It's as bad as the harmonica solo. From the ridiculous, um, maybe not to the sublime, but to something that that certainly is much darker. And again, we we have spoken about this this song before, the the three of us. Um, Absent fathers, violent sons. And I, I don't really think it's it's for me to say anything. I don't think it's really a song that one is meant to enjoy. Um, I think certainly it's a song that you can uh, appreciate. It, it certainly has emotional heft and, and resonance. I, I think maybe I just need to uh, allow one of you, both of you, to um, discuss it in, in, in whatever amount of detail you would you would think appropriate. I suppose like Safe, it's a very personal song and it's about sort of childhood and growing up and, and, and you know, basically um, witnessing your parents uh, divorcing or, you know, disintegrating. Um, all that, you know, that first line, dad said to mum, I never wanted a son. You know, it's, it's very much 
um, from a child's perspective, actually. Um, interestingly, we used to open our set with absent fathers. Um, and, uh, you know, before Disappointed took its place. So, uh, and it always seemed to work, you know, just to sort of go in sort of quite stealthily um, uh, live and then sort of pull out the sort of fast, fast stuff. But, um, yeah, absent fathers, I think... Um, <laughs> Mark and was it Mark and Lard on Radio One? One of our few mentions. They said it was one of the the, the ten most depressing song titles ever. Um, <laughs> they had a competition for, for, and someone sent it in, didn't they? A listener sent it in. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I I will say uh, just yeah when he play, when Jude played that to me in his in his bedsit in Camden, I, I was I was pretty impressed actually because I couldn't. All the other songs we were writing, I could tell exactly where they'd come from. I could tell, you know, yeah. that's come from a bit of Bowie, that's come from it. But where has this come from? I just, I, I, I'll, I, tell you, I'll tell you now, Joe. I'll reveal it. I <laughs> it came from bizarrely playing "Jealous Guy" by No, because uh, it, it uses that chord. <laughs> the to, without getting too technical, the E minor sick. Yes, it does. Um, and uh, so, so that yeah, it all came off. Okay. off the, You've the shattered my. Uh, <laughs> it's jealous guy called. have a listen to jealous guy and he uses it all right but i think i it was it still didn't sound like anything i'd heard and i, and I think again when you're listening to someone play you a song the imagery is what you pick up on or what i picked up on so there are these little words and lines you know that were really interesting and again you know kevin this was another one of the on the first rehearsal we played this was kevin and he, he was just like I think he must have thought oh, that's that's really good, you know. I mean, that's not that's not copying another band or another artist, you know, apart from John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think that you could um, lay magpie eyes at your door. I mean, it was obvious that you were drawn on on influences, but I don't. I never got the feeling when I was listening to the flamingos, or when I do listen to the flamingos now, that I was listening to copyists. You know, it it never had that feeling. You know, it, it always felt like, yeah, inspiration. Talent borrows, genius steals, right? Um, and I, 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 I'll leave it to listeners to conclude where I think you lie on that uh, particular spectrum. The answer is genius. Right. Let's look at um, Winter, which seems to draw on very different influences than some of the other things in the record. I've been listening to a lot of Nick Drake um, of late. And there's something about winter that is almost folky in parts and there are echoes of, of Nick Drake and Donovan as, as well as some of those more kind of winsome 80s indie bands, I guess. It has a, 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 a genteelness, if not a gentleness. Um, and, and for me, there's a key line in there which would only work in that kind of musical framework, I think, which is I never properly said I love you. And there was something about the use of the word properly in that sentence that really tickled my fancy as well. this one uh i did um james here speaking um it's amazing to hear paul actually what you take from the uh the songs you know um 
that this is something you can't control as a writer. You just have no idea who you know what's gonna what's going to what's going to resonate. Um, Winter didn't. It was from an earlier period. It was probably the only song that we kept from the the sort of the cull when we had the year zero. Um, and I suppose I was pushing for it to be on the album. Uh, it doesn't really fit on the album. People were saying it sounded like we were coming from a more sort of Stone Roses thing, and that that does that does sort of date it a little bit. Um, the folky thing is there. It, I wasn't aware of Nick Drake at the time, um, uh, but it was quite. Again, this is one of the personal songs. We never played it live. I don't think um, it was about the uh, breakup of my first. Um, proper relationship my first proper serious girlfriend and I remember showing it to her this, you know when we here it is you know and she she wasn't that sort of amazed by it but you know <laughs> good friends now and, and I think she's quite she's quite sort of touched that someone wrote a song uh, about her or about us so you know um but there were little in the lyrics again there were little sort of um sort of clues for for her you know from, from our sort of favorite um bands there's, there's a there's a, a quote from the primitives swam together like yeah. children do um that's from the primitives first album so there's all sorts of little code things in there but it was quite quite heavy quite sort of heavy fare really um we, we never played it live but my one memory <laughs> uh, i don't know whether this is in memory songs actually but um we, we were playing this gig i think it was in um sweden and someone at the front of the stage was just calling out what sounded like wanker oh, yeah. for, for like you know 10 minutes and then we we met him afterwards at a backstage and he said i wanted you to play winter <laughs> <laughs> sorry um, yeah yes well, that, that, what's particularly amusing about that for me is that the next song on the album is scenester no I, I should caveat this or preface this. I should preface this. I once went to see Stuart Lee uh, here in Edinburgh and I turned up at the, the comedy club here in Edinburgh where he was appearing and took my seat. And at the corner of the stage was a guitar. And I got really nervous, like really nervous. I don't like comedy songs. I, I don't like funny songs. You know the kind of thing I mean? I don't, I don't like that. It, it, it just it makes me physically start to itch and scratch because it just never works when somebody's deliberately anyway so i sat through the whole thing just not able to focus on how great Stuart Lee was because i knew he was going to do a funny song at the end and then he did do a funny song at the end but i didn't like it and it just ruined the whole night for me so it's rare for humor in a song to work for me but there is a wonderful line in uh scene which genuinely makes me laugh for a variety of reasons. And it's that kind of opening couple of lines. I would like to know what makes you tick, but the sight of you just makes me sick. And that just, it just floors me every time. And I think it's because I continually meet people in life who have that exact effect on me. But I'm thinking to myself, 
what what is going on inside your head and I, I should really ask but actually no no and i'm absolutely sure that that is exactly the effect i have on other people as well so it's it's uh it's it's my favorite line on the whole album for, for exactly that reason and i'm very sorry because i know you probably wrote much more moving and emotive and careful lines but it, it just really makes me laugh I, I wish I wish I'd phrased this is a big regret with albums are never good to have. But I just I wish I'd, I'd, I'd enunciated it sick a little bit like clearer there at the end because it sort of gets lost a bit. But yeah, it it was I mean the, it was you know sinister that that kind of phrase that kind of person hadn't really evolved at that point. So no. I'm not sure quite you know that came a lot later where you'd get lots of guys sort of hanging around the scene as it were in, in Camden um I think what it was 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 just to sort of the person I'm talking about takes themselves very seriously so this thing about being focused like a laser beam I think someone had said that to me I'm very focused it's just absurd you know it's, what, are you, what are you talking about um uh so and again I mean it's quite lightweight weight I mean it's it's a I didn't I didn't I wasn't really happy with the fact that it was quite negative. It was like a Dylan song, a hate song almost. Mm. Um and it wasn't just put those sort of vibes out wasn't wasn't great and it was always difficult to play live and um but I think it's it's great that you find it funny because Keith our our um the engineer who took over from from Dick just laughed constantly during that. He thought the lines were funny, he thought the guitar solo was funny. You know, it just, it just thought it was a scream from from start to finish. You know, um, well, maybe 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 Keith and I are just sort of hateful people, and and maybe maybe your problems with it align the fact that you're a nice human being. You know, and and to which I can only say, well, well done you, well done you. <laughs> now he just he thought Jude's guitar solo, which is one of my favourites on the on the record, is only sort of four notes. It's just these big bent notes that are almost power chords. And Keith just thought this was amazing because because no one was really playing guitar like that, you know. Um, Jude, have you got any comments? Because this was a kind of big guitar song for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was one of the first like songs that um, when we ripped up the old plan, we came up with, and you came into the rehearsal room with it, and it was it's that sort of uh, John Lydon line, "Anger is an energy," you know, um, uh, and it is just you know it never failed live to get that out of your system about you know seamsters and all the people you know all the leaguers wearing adidas you know t- trainers and so actually kevin was one of those <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know um so it was good to sort of position yourself you, you know against um everybody going out having fun and games you know it's um it's it's almost like the Smiths line, the dreaded sunny day. You meet you at the cemetery gate. It's like I, I'm not going to be part of your big Britpop party, you know. I mean, for most of them, couldn't afford to be part of it. Oh, go out. Um, That's right. But um, but no, no, it was it was a, it was a really um, uh, a wonderful song to play live. And um, there is a video of it kicking around. Which we, there is. That's right. Yeah. Hamisham Arms, which um, which was sort of saved from old footage and, and re-edited. Um, uh, and and we look about 12 years old in it, which is quite funny. But um, funny, funny you should mention comedy songs. Shall we move on to The Chosen Few? Ten 
<laughs> well, oh. you know, the, the chosen few, I mean, here's here's the thing about the chosen few for me. And I, I know that when people listen to, to me speaking to guys like you who you know, were so important to me at that time and, and remain important for, for possibly different reasons now. They, they do think that what I'm about to say could be sycophancy or whatever. But w- when I listen to The Chosen Few and then I think about things like Country House and Roll With It, battling for number one and being on television and, you know, selling a billion copies each and all the rest of it. And then I listen to The Chosen Few. It's a great pop song. It's a really, really great pop song. And it, 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 could, it could stand toe to toe with any of these you know sort of Britpop anthems for want of a better word I, I love it, I absolutely love it I, I like I like Danny, I want to know who Danny is and I'm well, definitely keen to find out who Kinky Jane is or was Well that's very kind for you to, to say that, I mean it was it was a first single on um, La La Land which is before Pandemonium right. the, the label which was um, run by a guy called Tav who discovered literally discovered Ash um, with Jack names the planets um, on on a cassette, you know. So he put out this first single with Chosen Few and Tonight Is Killing Me, which is a, a B side, um, which is always another good song to play live. But the Chosen Few is much more in the vein of of Roxy or Bowie, this sort of expansive song. Um, but uh, it it is about someone, <laughs> and um, the person it's about is uh, a comic i mean he's a comic and activist a uh, guy called rob newman who's part yeah. of uh, and he rob is five years older than us but he went to the same school uh this state comp in in um hertfordshire called hitching boys school and uh, rob was always a man destined to to become famous um and i mean literally you know he, he sort of rocked around school dressed dressed all in black like mark armand's he went to Cambridge, you know, and hated it. And um, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I think I still think he's a he's a comedy genius, Rob. Um, but he, I think he paid a high price for for becoming so famous as he did in the early nineties. Um, and the chosen few was, a, was about about Rob, you know, saying you always knew this was going to happen. I bet you always knew that you'd be among the anointed few. Um, yeah. So, but the other characters in the songs, are, you know, are sort of, I mean is Rob Danny or is Danny a friend of ours who's also called Dan? There's a sort of composite picture there. You know, Kinky Jane, was she someone I was going out with for two years in the, in the, in the <laughs> early 90s or, uh, or or with the same name or was she somebody else? Uh, you know, it's... <laughs> but really, you know, when we used to sing it, it was, I was, you know, thinking, and it's strange when you, you have to play songs hundreds if not thousands of times live you really have to 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 believe in every word because you're going to be asked to keep going with these songs yeah. i would always be thinking about rob you know because um we're friends now but at the time you know rob sort of disappeared from uh, everybody's sort of he went off grid whilst he was sort of in his his fat elvis period as he called it or as john called it and he um <laughs> He, he 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 but he was everywhere in the press you know um so it was a song to this sort of absent figure really who was massively famous at the time um and that's the story behind it i, I always sort of heard more of uh dan duke in uh that's who i thought of as the character really um not having written the song especially because the line about the plastic jewels which which became the album title was a direct reference to how duke 
Duke used to dress, you know. But as you say, it's a composite song. Songs are uh, use composite characters. When when you first played that song to me, I, I thought, ooh, this is this is pretty good, you know. That was the first song that was that. That's where the the direction was going to go. Um, but a couple of little things of we never co-wrote songs, but we were sort of editors. I think on each other's songs, and there were a couple of little tweaks that uh, I made <laughs> to the chosen few. Is the chorus we were trying to get away from from use? It was so hard not to use Americanisms in songs, and the chorus uh, used the word "guess." I guess you always knew you were, you know, going to be among the chosen few. And I said, "Why don't you use the word bet? I bet you." Yeah. you. Uh, just that little tweak, you know. Um, and there were numerous ones that you'd suggested for, for mine as well. So that that's that's a kind of good example. I mean, they weren't easy, these things, you know, songwriting sessions. They were always big arguments. But but I think that's what that's quite valuable in it sort of to, to you know, as a sort of collaborative, creative process. But as I say, not co-writes at all, but it's more of an editor sort of thing. You know? Well, I mean, I, I can only... I was going to say I can only guess at the the tensions that must exist in the songwriting process, and particularly when you're your twin brothers. But I don't need to guess because I've seen the Bros documentary, <laughs> so I can I, I can imagine I can I can see very clearly how how it would have been. Now the there's a a phrase in uh, filmmaking uh, called the the canted angle, or sometimes it's called the Dutch angle, where in order to show a sort of disequilibrium. You, you, you tilt the camera ever so slightly so it, it's kind of sitting on an angle they use it quite often in horror films or if you're trying to show that somebody is maybe experiencing some kind of emotional trauma you know they'll kind of tilt the camera just to give you that feel that things are a little bit wobbly a little bit unstable um, and that's where we're at on the album is, is this track unstable I wonder if, if either of you think it's possible to have even a modicum of creativity and be stable. I mean, you know, there's that great line in one of Morrissey's later songs about there's no such thing in life as normal. But is it possible to be stable or do you do you have to have something of the canted angle to your personality? Do, do either of you feel at that point, certainly, that you were stable or does the creative process rely on something being slightly off i mean the other you know uh take on this is flow bears which is you know be be um uh sort of quite organized and formal and stable in your life so you can be wild and adventurous in the work but i mm. think you know at the time unstable was it was very much about you know being rattling around london having no money feeling that you were sort of living on coffee, red wine, cigarettes, <laughs> um, and living living on your nerves, really. And I think, I mean, the song was written after Disappointed, so again, it came really late, and it was, um, it was, it was really, it was, 
another one that was a, a blast to play live because there's so much like scenes there's so much sort of anger in there you know and sort of contradictory emotions going on um but but to, to answer your question Paul yeah I, I think really you don't you don't start writing songs or or books if you are um a, a, a stable functioning <laughs> individual <laughs> Well, it's an it's an it's an odd response to life, isn't it? Arts to create art, you know. Why would you, why not just just go through and and just just uh, live it and experience it? So, so yeah, I, I agree. I think specifically with this song, uh, it, it was a blast to play live. Um, and I think because I I was this James speaking, I was obsessed with melody at the time, with things like Scenester, and it, and this was what I felt was a weak song. <laughs> the time on the album because it wasn't melodic it was more of a riff and uh and now i see it's revealed that you had to have this this point in the album you needed something that was less melodic than the other songs uh and that was just quite different in a way it was it was just a proper you know balls out rocker um so in that sense, in terms of programming and being part of the album, it really works. I mean, we did, we did this show with Echo Belly at Harlow Square. And it was really hot, I seem to remember. And all their audience were going bananas to this song, to Unstable. And we were just rocking it at the at the front of the stage and thinking, right, this this is, you know, this really does, you know, we wanted to get better as a live band because Echo Belly were, were not just a great live band, but consistently great night yeah. after night. I mean, they just were a machine. It was, it was incredible to watch, and we so we were very sort of we were taking notes, and we were very envious of that. And you know, Unstable was was you know, Echo Belly had sort of twelve Unstables in their set. You know, well, the the next track on the album is quite appropriate to be talking about it this week. Certainly up here in Scotland, it may well be a nationwide thing. Or it might just have been inside the school where I work. It's been sort of mental health week and we've had a lot of discussion about you know taking time to talk over the last couple of weeks and it seems to me that the message again at the risk of being too pretentious but the the, the core message inside suicide bridge which is the, the the track we've reached now has really taken 25 years to break into the mainstream and when when, when you wrote this song in 1995 94 93 this wasn't really a, a subject for polite discourse you know mental health there was still a real taboo around it occasionally you know you get some like Morrissey breaking cover but by and large that wasn't really how how this was dealt with in the in the entertainment business for want of a better word I didn't, James wrote it, but it is my favourite song, I think, on the album. I mean, it's, you know, it was about a friend of ours, childhood friend, who suddenly took his own life at 25. Um, and uh, it, it, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, um, <clears throat> suicide was much more a taboo and mental health 
poor mental health back in the 90s, 25 years ago. Um, and I mean, to, to the extent that the song was originally called A Conversation, and James talked early, earlier about us sort of editing each other's songs. And I, I remember saying, well, why don't we just come out with it and call it, you know, call it for what it is. And there's a very famous bridge in London, which goes over the A1 as you go down to towards Archway, that's become known as the Suicide Bridge. Um, because it was a, a, a you know grimly a, a popular spot yeah. um, for it, and uh, so we named the, named the song after that. But um, yeah, it, it was one of those uh, songs we did play it live. You know, and it was always very intense playing that one live. James, yeah. do you want to say something about the, the song? Yeah, about... it, lots of things really, because you know, as, as Jude said, you know, on a, on a sort of pure songwriting thing, it was you know it, a, a conversation was an inert title and so Jude plucked out you know out on Suicide Bridge who is master of the situation uh and you know so it so it worked you know but it's very interesting what you say Paul about how this has taken 25 years because I guess and I hadn't thought of that ever really that, that people weren't talking about this I think what it came from was my last chat with um our friend uh, and I just I'd literally just passed my driving test and I was it was the last day in Hitchin. I bumped into him and uh, we just had a little like two second conversation. Oh, watcher, you know, <laughs> in one of the sort of alleys in Hitchin. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to London, you know, and he seemed sort of quite sort of quite happy then, you know. And then sort of as we were, you know, writing the album, um, we get the call from our mum saying, oh, you know, um, I won't name him, but um sure. As a, it's, it's really sad news, you know, and I thought, why couldn't you have said something <laughs> the last time we met? You know, so the whole thing is, you know, um, if you if you wanted to talk about it. But, you know, guys, you know, they didn't do that then and uh, probably still don't do now, you know. Um, so, but yeah, but a very good point about how it's, it's taken, you know, that, that amount of time for, for people to actually discuss those issues. Well, I think... I think you're right to talk about the reluctance of, of men to discuss those things, and you know we could, you know, we could probably spend another hour and a half talking about what, why that's the case and about you know the, the the sort of social constructs around what it means to be a man. But I think for me, I I make a real point. So in in school when we have these sort of mental health awareness weeks and what have you. I'm very open with the kids now. I, for a long time I wasn't. I used to dance around it, but now I'm very open about my own experiences with depression and self-harm and, you know, kind of anxiety and all these other things, because I feel like if somebody had had those conversations with me, it may have helped me to find help a little bit quicker and therefore maybe avoided some of the things that have happened to me over the years. And I think, you know, a song like Suicide Bridge, I mean, it's, I, I guess it won't be for you to make any comment on this really, but I, I can only speak as a listener when i hear something like that i have that wonderful sense of it's not just me and that, that, that there is a real kind of soothing balm of gilead that that, that, that kind of is, is applied to your skin at that point that you feel right okay it's not just me so i think the song is a great song it's brilliantly written but i think actually what the song is about and and the fact that it's even been discussed is so much more important than that even yeah, no, that that's amazing. I mean, you know, I think the, the the key line, just thinking about the song, is um, you know, you don't have to act so hard. Yeah, uh, which is that, which is you know, I, I didn't intend that to sort of encapsulate the, the sort of the conversation around, but that is kind of it, really, isn't it? It's not 
actually um you, you know sort of uh discussing these things because because this is this is a taboo in society but um yeah um it does reach out as a song i think with that line if you need to talk talk to me you know right. and i think it, you know, for, for you to say paul that you felt sort of less alone maybe with those songs we've all got songs by, by other bands that make us feel sort of less alone I think, um, I, I, you know, that's great. You know, it's mission accomplished. I think. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, let's uh, let's move on. We've we've got um, just just two tracks left. It's incredible. Uh, so the penultimate track in the album is "Last of the Big Spenders," which it, it gives another shout out, as I believe the young people said twenty years ago. Uh, I go to the sea for a spending spree, but my gyro is late, which is another <laughs> line. <laughs> just. I just love that line. It's just so great. It's, you know? it's, another, it's sorry for it. Yeah, it's just another song moaning about money. Um, yeah. money. And it, it was, you know, uh, written at the height of sort of frustration about it. You know, we'll catch the bus if we've got enough. Literally, getting the twenty-nine bus to the studio every day was becoming a problem by kind of early '94. Um, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, and a blast to play as well. You know, play, played it really fast. Um, it's one of those songs that sort of runs away with you as 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 you play it. And um, always had a sort of soft spot for it. Although, as James mentioned, that this sort of obsession with melody it is quite sort of one note, really. stuff you know yeah, that's right. um, <laughs> a line from unstable as well fortune and fame and food in my plate better coming never than much too late you know, right. this idea of, of of you know just frustration with all this you know this this stuff um and you know now it's almost impossible to be in a band and be as poor as we were back then because you just can't you can't do it you can't sustain it you can't live in a city kind of in london um, only the posh boys now are are making music it seems yeah, um, yeah there's something there's something quite sad about that isn't there um it's yeah. yeah there's a there's a reference of course to the seaside as well in that line isn't it? i go to the sea for a spending spree and there were lots of references to the seaside during that era in british but i guess you know suede did it as well I mean, mm-hmm. um, but I, I wonder you know there's something about the seaside I wonder, is that about, well, is it is it just because it rhymes with spending spree or is it about, you know, a metaphor for, you know, kind of the fading glamour or a yearning for things as they were in childhood? And, do, do you know what I mean? Am I, am I over romanticising things here? Not, not at all. No. And it was, I mean, the sea side I was thinking of was Brighton, you know, and if you live in London, it was that thing that's going down to Brighton and 
you know, look around the charity shops and go, well, that's the spending spree. But yeah, there's that feeling of, you know, freedom. Freedom was elsewhere. Life was happening elsewhere. Um, and also that return to sort of childhood, you know. Um, interesting, there's a few sound effects on, on the album. And uh, at the end of winter, there's this sound. It sounds like a kind of motorway, but it's actually a recording of the sea with waves as it fades out at the end, just before Scenester kicks off. Um, so maybe that there's that, you know, that sea um, <clears throat> motif going through other songs. And then the last song, it's been a thrill. You mentioned the River Thames as well. Well, I, I was just going to come to that. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you're right. We, we, we conclude uh, the album with It's Been a Thrill, which is a very kind of London-y song, you know, the, the Thames and there's a line about strike a light. Um, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a, that's the last uh, accent I'm doing. So enjoy it. Um, I came to this town as a young male. I paid the price. Yet I'm still for sale, which is another wonderful line. So who, who wrote It's Been a Thrill? I, I wrote it. It's James speaking. Um, yeah, things things like um, the, those lines. I mean, the, Jennifer Nine, who reviewed the album in Melody Maker, um, she interpreted it, which is fair enough. She said this is a song about a rent boy that's come to mm. London and still for sale. I was not, I was talking in a lot more of an oblique sense, being still for sale, maybe still hadn't made it yet, you know, in terms of, yeah. uh, you know, success. Um, there are lots of little things in there. Oil on Canvas was me always trying to get Japan references into, into the songs. You know? <laughs> uh, just, again, little code, little sort of Masonic code for people out there, but no one, no one knows. Um, this was one of the earliest ones that was on the first demo, and it was always a big sort of showboating. Suede did have a their, their, their fingerprints are, I will admit, um, sort of quite uh, sort of uh, on, on this. Um, but it was, again, always a, a good one to, to, to finish the set with. Uh, live you know it's actually about and this is another curious experience being dumped by a friend I think we've all had the experience of being had a had a relationships been ended but this was a, a friend of mine uh, who was also in the band and just decided one day he just just, just didn't want to know me you know and I was well, quite sort of cut up about that you know um, didn't realize how much until you know started writing the song um, it's not totally about that. Again, there, there are composite things in there, but that was the actual genesis of the song, which is quite an odd thing to write about now, I've come to think of it. You know, that's another one of these things that maybe, um, you know, men aren't particularly good at talking about is relationships with other men. You know, and I, I certainly know that my experience, I had a very, well, I, I don't know the details of your experience there, James, but, but my experience was that I had a friend that I went through school with, you know, I mean, he was my Britpop compadre. You know, we went to all these big gigs together, blah, blah, blah. And then one day he just wasn't there. Yeah, you just and, and, Yeah, he just, just dropped. And, I, you know, that's you know, 20 years ago now. And I still find myself kind of looking for him on Facebook, you know, or, you know, sending him messages on Facebook if I, if I stumble across his profile. You know, like, hey, how are you doing? How are things? And nothing back. And you're left with this kind of hole, mm. this vacuum, and not really knowing what it is that you've done. It's interesting. It's an interesting subject. I remember reading it was a, it was a female journalist writing about this a few years ago, and think, oh, no one's really talked about this this sort of you know this sort of experience. It's quite um quite a singular experience. Um, the the friend in question for me is dead now. Actually, he died 
quite young. Um, so we didn't get a chance to sort of, but he was an extremely sort of uh, highly pressured, not pressured, highly strung, highly motivated yeah. guy. He was a sparky guy. Uh, and it's just an extreme, an extreme person. This is exactly the sort of thing he'd do just to say, look, I'm just going to, I'm just going to cut off all contact. So yeah, as a, as I cut all ties, uh, I think that's, um, that's a line from it's been a thrill, you know, but it was a thrill being, being uh, sort of that brief. Again, it's the, the, the whole sort of tenor, the, the theme of the album is the intensity of those sort of experiences of youth, you know, friendships can be a lot more intense uh when you're that age you know yeah that's 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 definitely true that is everything's more intense at that age sadly everything's turned up full you know and (laughs) And i like that line um thank you for having me because that was the line you always told to say at kids birthday parties that's right (laughs) forget to say thank you for having me and it always (laughs) is echoed for me i must say we always finished the set with it's been a thrill i don't think we ever finished flamingo's show you know on another song um and that you know it's been a thrill right <laughs> always seem to make a comment on the gig you know if it had been a terrible gig it'd be an ironic comment so yeah <laughs> if it was a brilliant gig it would be a sort of yeah it's been a real sort of celebration um oh that's wonderful <laughs> well gentlemen we've, we've come at the end of the the album and uh, it's been so fascinating to hear your memories and recollections and inspirations and the, the musical nods and all the rest of it um and i genuinely it has a place in my heart and in the hearts of lots of other people and you know n- never never worry about whether or not it stood the test of time it really has it's it still sounds like a really great album it still sounds fresh which i believe is another phrase that young people use um and uh, you know i i absolutely adore it and i i cannot wait until my fundraiser on twitter uh, has reached its target so we can get you back together for a, a playthrough <laughs> Thank you, Paul, for those kind words. Yes, it's been it's been a thrill. It's been a thrill.